Hello, creative people. Welcome to Creative Conversations. My name is Hollis Citron, and we are so happy that you have chosen to spend your time with us. I am owner and founder of I Am Creative and Express Yourself Publishing, and I am on a mission to expand the definition of creativity beyond a pencil and a paintbrush and to empower people, especially adults, to own their voices and talents that come in so many different forms. This space was created to talk to people with all different kinds of jobs, hobbies and interests, and to have conversations about experiences and perspectives all centered around three questions. How do you define creativity? How do you incorporate it into your life? And why do you think it's important? Then we have a free-flowing conversation and we see where it goes. So I have had the opportunity to speak to so many. I've spoken to musicians, comedians, doctor, lawyer, wrestlers, Reiki masters, and entrepreneurs as young as 13. And these conversations explore the reality that creativity is not cute, it is necessary. People have defined creativity as that magic spark, how we show up in our life, imagination, basically all that we are and want to be, do, or have. So I believe from my heart that sharing these stories gives one the ability to expand their thinking, open themselves up for more self-expression, to feel more empowered, connected, and dare I say, happy. So my inspiring guest for today is Edie Weinstein. She is an MSW, an LSW. She is a licensed social worker, psychotherapist, interfaith minister, speaker, journalist, author, as well as a PR and marketing professional. She is also the founder of Hug Mobsters, Armed with Love, and offers free hugs worldwide. Oh my gosh. Amazing. Edie, welcome to the space. Uh, Can you hear me? I can. Hello, hello. Figured out the technology. I know we we had our rehearsal earlier today, but I was still a little nervous, so I'm glad I'm here. (laughs) You did it. Yay. (laughs) So before we dive in and get to know you even more, Edie, do you have any kind of a fun fact or anything that you would like to share briefly before we dive in? A fun fact. Hmm. Um, well, this is kind of a weird fact. I can cross my pinky toes over the other toe without touching them <laughs> with my fingers. Wow. So, I don't even know what to call that. <laughs> There's a, a technical term for it, but I learned to do that because when I was a child, I was flat footed and pigeon toed and yeah. I had to wear those horrible red orthopedic shoes when, um, most kids my age were wearing, um, penny loafers or, um, trying to think what what other shoes, moccasins, fringe moccasins. I'm a child <laughs> of the '60s and '70s, yes. so I had to wear those. And my and my mother took me to a podiatrist who told me that I needed to walk on my toes, pick thing you know, pick things up with my toes, and draw <laughs> alphabet letters with my feet in the air. So I have very <laughs> flexible feet. Nobody's ever asked me that before, so I had to come up with that on the fly. (laughs) I love that you just shared that. It's so funny that you brought that up because I'm flat-footed, pigeon-toed, and my my mom would laugh about it because when they took me to – somebody to help me anyway, they put shoes. They said that the answer was to put uh, the shoes on the opposite feet. And and she said they walked out of the store and they were like, what are we doing? This is ridiculous. But now I can wear any kind of shoes I want, but I still prefer barefoot. (laughs) 
That's I can't go barefoot. I like it hurts my back. Oh no. Because Uh-oh. of so being flat footed. Uh oh. So we're turning we're 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 doing um fetchy old lady conversation. <laughs> it's so interesting. Oh. But I like oh. being a fellow like flat footer, so okay. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. That for was sure. a no such yeah, no such thing as TMI between friends, right? <laughs> <laughs> Never too much. Um, okay, so we're going to do our would you rather, and then we will dive in. So, Edie, are you ready? Okay, go for it. <laughs> okay. Would you rather be able to speak every language on Earth or communicate with aliens? Huh. Um, that's a good question. I, can I do both? <laughs> Yes, um, this is a creative would, space and you can have yes, both I would, answers. I both. Yeah, because if I could if I could speak um every human language on the planet um and, and every animal language, you know, every living being language, it might be the same language the people from another beings from another planet speak. Mm-hmm. So that maybe I can do both. Yes, I like that answer. I was curious to hear what you would come up with being your philosophy of life and, you know, what you do, um, all of what you do. I was curious to hear um, how you would word that. So nice answer. It's almost creating a common language, Mm -hmm. Um, noticing each other's differences, but at the same time um, connecting. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So just to let you know, before we dive in, you're getting quieter and louder. So maybe try and keep it closer. Okay. Got it. Yeah. Is that better? Yeah, that's better. Cool. Okay. So first official, official question is how do you define creativity? Hmm. Well, because we are all create creations, um, I think anything that comes from a sentient being is, is creative that it it doesn't have to be stereotypical art, music, writing, anything like that. Um, The way we communicate is creative. The way we dress is creative. The way we um, show up for people in our lives. My form of creativity is writing and speaking. Um, I would say that I'm not a a graphic artist by any stretch, uh, although I do have people in my life that are. Um, so, you know, any, again, anything that comes from the heart, from the imagination is, is creativity. Mm. Thank you. Yes. Right. It kind of, everybody, we are, we are all of this. (laughs) So it's just like you said, everything that comes from the heart and it's a matter of being, being aware enough and vulnerable enough to show that. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So take us a little bit on a journey wherever you want to start. Um, I know that writing, when we had, had spoke prior, writing has been an, a strong part of your life ever since you were a kid. It was a way that you could express yourself, but wherever you want to start, um, kind of take us on your journey from where you were to where we are now, please. Okay. Uh, when I was a child, I read a lot. I would, I said that I would carry books around, <clears throat> excuse me, like they were teddy bears. I grew up down the street from a library and my mother would take my sister and, and me there every week for story hour. And I would sit on the floor and gaze up at um, this person that I referred to as the library lady, li- you know, <laughs> library lady, but the library lady, she would tell us stories. And I would leave the library with 
half a dozen books every week and I'd read them and then bring them back the next week. So books were an important part of my creative journey. Uh, my parents also subscribed to Highlights Magazine. It's, it's still mm -hmm. out there, I believe. It and is. we had hardcover versions. I wish we had saved them because they could probably be worth a lot of money now. But I, you know, I, that was part of my education as well. I would write stories, like creative stories. Um, my mother would say that when she didn't know where I was, she would assume I was down by the library sitting in this little, what she called my fairy grove, communing with the fairies. So I had a, um, an incredible imagination as a child. And blessedly, nobody in my life tried to squelch it. And they, my parents encouraged my creativity. They encouraged my reading. My sixth grade teacher, Richard Surfling, who is you know, a teacher's teacher, an educator's educator, um, encouraged my writing. And to this day, I still credit him with that. We've stayed in touch with each other all these years. Now, I'm 64 years old. He was my sixth grade teacher. So he's remained in my heart as an influence for me. Um, so that was helpful that he encouraged my writing. When I was in college, I think I took a creative writing class, but I didn't become a professional journalist until 1988, when my, my then husband, Michael, and I created a publication called Visions, had to do with holistic health and wellness, spirituality, and the like. And I was the, um, the primary interviewer where I got to interview all the movers and shakers in the metaphysical realms. Um, and, and to this day, I still have back copies of the publication. We did it for 10 years and then Michael died in 1998 of hepatitis C. Um, that's when I became a freelance journalist and I continue writing to this day for a number of different publications and websites. It's my joy. Um, I tell people that if you're a writer, you'll know it because you can't not write. Mm -hmm. I know that's not grammatically correct, but yeah. writing yeah. is, is what I do in my sleep. <laughs> Sometimes mm -hmm. I'll write articles in my sleep and when I wake up, I'll just, it's like taking dictation and then I type them out. <laughs> so you remember it when you wake up? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember most of my dreams too. So that's, you know, part of it is programming. Um, I say, okay, um, you know, I had a, um, I have a weekly column in a publication called the good men project and, um, it comes out on Tuesdays and I need to have the, the article in over the weekend prior. And as of last night, I hadn't written it for this week. And I said, all right, when I wake up, I'm going to have this article. And I did. And I, and I wrote it and two other articles today. So there are some days when I'm just a writing machine. Yeah, literally. Yeah. yeah. So and I don't get writer's block. I get writer's runs. So oh, I'm happy so to help people do more of that. <laughs> so wait, so you've never suffered from any kind of a writer's block? The only challenge I've had is coming up with an idea. Once I have a writing prompt, I can take off. And there are different types of writing that I've done. My favorite is just, you know, spur of the moment blog type writing. But I do have um, places for which I write that require research. That's not as much fun, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but, but I do it because it's what's, what's expected. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, tell me, tell me a little bit more about, I'm curious about your sixth grade teacher. So you still having a connection with him. That's just beautiful to me. Um, and ju well, just the fact that he also, uh, in those, in those, um, vulnerable years, uh, you, it could be the opposite. Of course, there can always, there's an opposite in everything, 
But if someone squashed that in sixth grade, that's a very vulnerable time. But who kept up the relationship and the connection? Did, did you like go back in college and find him or how did that work? Later than that, actually, um, 20, 20 years ago, maybe something like that. Um, I, I had talked about him. You know how sometimes people ask a question on social media, like, who is your favorite teacher and why? And I yeah. always said Richard, Richard Surfling. And I said, you know what? I really should track him down, find out, not, not you know, stalk him, track him down, but right. I really should you know, see if I can get back in touch with him. So um, I had heard that he had gone from being a teacher to being a principal to being a superintendent. And I found the, um, the school district in New Jersey, um, where he was a superintendent and I called the, the school, the, or, you know, the district office. And they said, you just missed him. He just retired this oh past Thanksgiving. Um, but if you look in the Burlington County phone book, back when we still had phone books, I bet you'll find him. They, you know, the <laughs> woman couldn't give me her, you know, his name, but, um, so I found him and I called and his wife answered the phone and, um, she said, um, Rich, one of your former students on the phone and he gets on the phone and it's like time stood still or rolled back time rolled back. Wow. And we had a, we had a unique classroom setting. Um, this was back in the experimental early seventies and mm -hmm. the, the district in Willingboro had what they called a non-graded classroom. And that meant not numerical or alphabetical grades, but comment, you know, comments on the student's performance. And yeah. in our classroom, it was fourth, fifth and sixth graders together. And the older kids mentored the younger kids and it was two teachers and 64 students in one huge classroom and he and the other teacher um, used creative teaching methods and we were allowed to do some of our own projects and we had a courtyard outside the classroom and if we got our work done we could go sit out there and do our do more of our work on friday afternoons we had a hoot nanny now those of those of you who are in your 20s or 30s will have no clue what i'm talking about but people <laughs> in you know our, maybe our generation um it was you know folk folk music so uh -huh. we they you know the two of our two of the girls in class both named debbie brought their guitars in and we sang um um, where have all the flowers gone? If I had a hammer, uh, a lot of a lot of um, hippie songs. And when I spoke with with Rich again, I I said you were training us to be little subversives. You know, that that they were all about peace, love, and understanding. So <laughs> when we got on the phone, I told him how much he meant to me, and you know what it what an inspiration he was that encouraged me to write. And he's chuckling, and and I and I said, are you surprised? He said, well. Normally, when I hear from former students, it's <clears throat> after they graduate high school or maybe college, but not 35 years later. And I said, I, you know, you've stayed with me that long. He said, well, let's get together for coffee or tea, whatever. Ten years went by and I hadn't reached out again. So fast forward and um, a friend is having a birthday party in the area where he lived and i called him again and i said i'm sorry it's been so long after you know between calls but i'm going to be in your area can i come over and visit before i go to my friend's birthday party oh absolutely I, we would love it and it was around valentine's day so the house was inside was decorated with hearts and you know and, and um just very lovey kind of energy yeah. there. 
I yeah. came to the door, you know, he greeted me at the door. I started crying immediately and he hugged me. Um, now I had, when I had published my first book in 2011 called The Bliss Mistress Guide to Transforming the Ordinary to the Extraordinary. And in the the, the credits, I, I said something about him and what an influence he was. And I brought a copy of the book to give to him. And so we, we both cried. Um, he and his wife and I sat down in the living room and we spent two amazing hours together reminiscing. Now, after he left that job um, and he retired, he became a mentor for other administrators. So when I said he was a teacher's teacher, he was an administrator's teacher as well. And they were a, ve a very sweet couple. And we just had such an amazing um trip down memory lane i guess and we've stayed in touch on facebook and every once in a while when i write something about him i'll, I'll send it over to him and if you want I, I can send you the article that i wrote called something about the long and winding road mm -hmm. um, and the reason i i called it that was that that was the same year that the beatles came out with the song the long and winding road was the year i finished sixth grade well, it's just so beautiful to have those connections. And I want to make sure that we kind of get into these other aspects of you because there's oh, yeah. so much that kind of this is a portion of you. But I would really love for you to tell us a little bit more about before we get into the hug mobs, mobsters, being a licensed social worker, a psychotherapist, a minister, these aspects. Tell us a little bit more about when you got into these areas and and sure. what they mean to you, please. Sure. Um, unlike most children, I had no clue what I wanted to do when I grew up. And I decided in high school, probably my senior year, that I wanted to go to school to learn psychology because I felt like I was always the go-to person among my friends when they were looking for advice. And back in the 1960s and 70s, women were generally secretaries, nurses, or teachers. Mm -hmm. um, my mom was a switchboard operator at Sears. Um, there weren't, as far mm -hmm. as I can remember, there weren't any therapists in my family. And I decided to go to school to earn a bachelor's degree in psychology. I went to Glassboro State College, which is now called Rowan University. Mm -hmm. And while I was there, I volunteered initially and then got a paying job working at a counseling center called Together Incorporated. And it had a crisis intervention, suicide prevention hotline. It had a women's program. It had a rape crisis program. It had a, um, a youth shelter. So I was there, I think three years. And it's where I cut my teeth on counseling, you know, psychology 101, uh, you know, on the fly, boots on the ground. You know? mm -hmm. And um, I made incredible friends there that to this day we're still in touch with each other and have been a you know a huge part of each other's lives and when i graduated in 1981 i still didn't know what i wanted to do and i spent the next two years waiting tables doing massage i'm a massage practitioner uh what else did i do i was an artist model at an art school it was very cold. <laughs> it was really cold. And I, and I got stiff sitting for so long. But it was good. It was good money back then. Um, the, one of the coolest jobs I had in between 
was as a practice patient at a medical school or you know hospital that was a teaching school. Uh, it was called the GTA program, Gynecologic Teaching Associates. It was at Hahnemann Hospital in Philly, um, which is no longer. The, the hospital is, is now gone. Yeah. But it, I was there for, I taught in the program for three years. And our role is, as, um, I guess, practice patient educators was to teach the second year medical students how to give exams and how to treat their patients like human beings. Oh my and, gosh. I just have to stop. That's amazing. Yes. <laughs> so I loved that job. I don't know why I stopped after three years, but it was maybe the program folded. I don't, I don't recall, but it got high ratings every time. And part of the reason why that, that kind of revealed or reinforced why I did it is that one of the young medical students, a young woman in her middle, like middle twenties, um, said she had never been to a gynecologist. And we said, why? And she said, because it was too embarrassing, too uncomfortable. Um, I, you know, I just didn't feel right about it. And I said, that's why we're doing this. Yeah. So, yeah. so young girls can feel comfortable <laughs> going, yes, you know, going yes. to see the, a doctor. I probably was in, I guess my middle teens after I got my period. So I did that for three years. And then I said, okay, I'm gonna go back to graduate school. What do I wanna study? So somebody had told me that um, a master's in social work was a, a flexible degree that you could do lots of cool things with it. So I enrolled at Rutgers in Camden. It was a two year program and um, I graduated in 1985. Mm -hmm. And I think of at MSW as master of saving the world. That I took on that responsibility <laughs> mm -hmm. um, to my detriment, unfortunately, which I'll tell you a little bit about later. Yeah. So that was yeah. the that was this, the social work part, and I've worked in pretty much every aspect of social work. I, you know, I've worked inpatient medical, inpatient psych, outpatient drug and alcohol, community mental health, um, what else? Nursing home, home care, and I currently work at a. Um, uh, outpatient group practice. I've never done child welfare. I couldn't, it, it would be too heartbreaking for me. Although mm -hmm. I, I do know people that do it and do it quite well, but that's the only aspect of social work that I can think of that I haven't done. And mm -hmm. I love the, you know, the eclectic nature of, of the work that I do. Um, in 1998 is when my husband died. He had been enrolled in the new seminary, which is a, an interfaith seminary in New York to become an interfaith minister. And it was a two year program. And I had casually studied along with him, not intending in any way to do this work myself. Um, when he was too ill to stay awake, to read his papers or, re or read books, I would read to him. He had neuropathy in his hands, so I would type his papers. He was a correspondence student, so I would listen to the audio tapes or watch and watch the videotapes. Um, he died uh, December 21st of 1998. He was in Jefferson, another hospital for folks that don't know, in Philadelphia. And when we turned, he was waiting for a liver transplant. And when we turned off life support, the voice came to me. Now, being a social worker, ha having worked in psych a psych hospital, I know the difference between a psychotic voice and a mm -hmm. spiritual calling. And the voice said, call the seminary and ask to finish what Michael started. So I did, you know, after his funeral, um, they welcomed me, the dean welcomed me into the class and said, you can graduate this year 
you know, with Michael's class on two conditions. One is that you're doing it for yourself too, not just for him. And the other is that you have to do both years work simultaneously or um, finish it out the next year. And I said, nope, going to do it all. So six months after my husband died, um, you know, I had to write my own papers, but I knew the coursework. Um, I was ordained at the um, uh, Cathedral of St. John the Divine in New York. Have you ever been there? No. Oh, it's this huge Gothic cathedral. And it's so big that they can't heat it or air condition it. So the ordination was on like a 90 degree day and dripping in sweat. Oh my God. <laughs> but that's how I became an, an interfaith minister. Um, since then, I've married something like 400 couples and have done hmm, maybe 10 funerals. And I'm surprised that having you know studied in the midst of grief, I, d- I haven't done more funerals. Um, so I've, I've married a lot of couples. And the cool thing is that I run into many of them in the area where I live near Doylestown, and they're still together, which is exciting. You know? Wow. I get to I- meet their children and, you know. I just want to touch on this for a minute. I mean, I'm just sitting here with my mouth open as you're saying all of this of what you did for your husband, first of all, which is incredible. I mean, you were with him every step of the way, guiding him through a process. And then you were literally a part of it. And then you finished like while you were grieving in six months, doing all of the work that you did. Like, oh my God, Edie. Yeah, I was working in a nursing home at the time as well. But it was my my grief therapy. I didn't go to grief counseling. I didn't go to any support mm-hmm. groups. Just doing this. Um, now, when he was in uh, the ICU at Jefferson, I literally lived there the last five and a half weeks of his life. Because as I said, we were waiting for a liver transplant. And I didn't want to be an hour away, just in case. Um, but I got to be with him You know, when he died. Our son got to be with him. Adam was 11 at the time. He's now 35. Mm -hmm. Um, so that was a part of it It was raising a child as a single parent. And for those single parents out there, the the idea that you have to be both mother and father, nah, can't, Mm -hmm. um, I didn't know how to be a father. So, um, I reached out to platonic male friends and asked if they'd be part of the, you know, team Adam to be of support. And I was really grateful and blessed. And one of them, um, was a man named Phil Garber. Um, Phil became Adam's unofficial big brother and then father figure. Um, and he jokingly would call him, call me his baby mama, um, you know, even though Adam was a teenager at the time. Um, mm-hmm. So Phil and his wife, Janet, were part of the village that helped me raise my child. Um, sadly, though, Phil died. He had his own, he had a cardiac condition. He died a little more than a week before Adam and his wife, Lauren, got married. Um, Phil was going to walk Adam down the aisle with me, but he, he had died, you know, like I said, almost a week earlier or more than a week earlier. So Phil's wife, Janet, and I walked Adam down the aisle together. So so it's needing to be spontaneously available for whatever happens is one of the things we learned in seminary. Yes. Oh my gosh. That is such a life lesson. Mm -hmm. Um, Being spontaneously available for life. Because th- this isn't a script, everybody. <laughs> we don't know how things are going to go. As much as we try and control, you can only you can only quote unquote control so much, right? Yeah. And what yeah, beauty in that? Yeah. I'm sorry. I'm sorry it's to interrupt, okay, but I. It's okay. It's okay. Go, ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, it's, it's just that thought of when you said. I think that's just a very powerful statement of 
saying that when you're a single parent that you have to be a mom and a dad. And you're like, no, I don't know how to be a dad. So it's reaching out to your community mm-hmm. for help and finding that. Yep. Yeah. And I didn't, you know, I, I didn't grow up as a man in our society. And even though I grew up in a home where um, I, I have a sister, um, but where we were we were raised to be ki- you know kids, not just girls. And in the Jewish tradition in which I grew up, um, women were not counted in the minion, um, M-I-N-Y-A-N, which was a, a quorum that was needed for certain prayers. Women were not rabbis. Women couldn't wear a talus, which is a prayer shawl. So when I would sit next to my father in synagogue. He'd wrap one side of it around me. And, um, you know, so... I, but he would also say there's a different code of ethics for men. Um, you know, men and women have different um, experiences, and that stuck with me. And I wanted to make sure that my son had the best of both worlds. That he, you know, that he grew up with a powerful mom and with with male role models whose values I agreed with, and who who helped teach Adam respect. Yeah. Yes, and he's yes, a wonderful, yes. You know, a wonderful father. I've got two beautiful grandchildren who are um, the center of my universe, as my son predicted. <laughs> so my, my, yeah, my mornings are spent watching them. I don't call it, it's not babysitting. I'm, you know, I, I'm with my grandchildren. And they call me Bubby, which is Yiddish for grandmother, which I fought mightily when my son told me that that's what, his, you know, any potential grandchildren would call me. Um, because my grandmother, my Bubby, was like a, a, I called it smother love. She was really yeah. overprotective and um, worried about everything. And I said, I'm not a Bubby. And he said, I don't care. They're going to call you Bubby. So the year after my son, my grandson Dean was born, Lauren and Adam got me a t-shirt with a peace sign in the middle and it says hippie Bubby. So <laughs> I'll, I own that. I'm hippie Bubby. <laughs> it's so interesting though, because it's carrying that words carry meaning. And we have, we attach our experiences to those words and um, talk about kind of not being able to plan things. I honestly, for our kids, I didn't know what they were going to call their grandparents, but um, they end up now as adults, they call her graham cracker. Oh, I like that. So, yeah. Or, or as they've gotten somewhere along the line, that became her name. And then um, now as they're older, my, my son calls her big Susie and I'm little Susie. (laughs) So it kind of changes, it changes along the way. Um, Okay. So let's get into, cause I want to go into the second question. um, But I also, this is what I call this exploring the power of the hug mobsters armed with love. This is a huge, I love this aspect of what you do in this heart to heart connection. Tell us about the hug mobsters, please. Yes. Um, Valentine's day weekend of 2014, I brought a group of friends to 30th street station, which is a huge train station in Philadelphia. And I did it on uh, February 15th, the day after Valentine's day for a purpose. Number one, I wanted people to know that Valentine's day is not just one day out of the year. It could be every day. Mm -hmm. And that Valentine's day is not just for romantic couples. Love is for everybody. So there were a dozen of us armed with our signs that said free hugs. And one of our very clever wordsmith friends had a sign that said pro bono hugs instead of free hugs. (laughs) 
<laughs> so that, that was fun. Um, we at noon, we unleashed ourselves on the train station. And one of our friends, um, Ron, who's a, a musician, among other things, um, sang the song, give a little bit, you know, give a little bit, mm -hmm. give a little bit of your love to me over mm -hmm. and over and over. I mean, I, I don't know how many times he sang it in an hour, as we walked through the train station, offering people hugs. Some people said no, and we said, okay, no problem. Hug somebody, even yourself. But most people said yes. Now, the most powerful hug came from a man who approached us. He was an Iraq war vet who said he was the only survivor of his platoon, and he had survivor's guilt. And he said, I thought about killing myself until I met you people because you give me hope. Can I join you? So, of course, we started sobbing, not sobbing, but crying, um, you know, tears trickling down. Felt like sobbing, though. And we said, sure. And we gave him his own sign. Now, all these years later, I have no clue where he is. I hope that he went on to, you know, to have a meaningful life. Um, but he's he's in my prayers. So my thought was, oh, my goodness, hugs save lives. I didn't know how powerful that statement was until June 12th of 2014. I was on my way home from the gym where I would normally spend, you know, Planet Fitness, um, normally split, spend five or six nights a week after working 12 to 14 hour days um, working out. And on the way home, I had a heart attack. I could feel the palpitations, the nausea, the dizziness, the heartburn, um, the most you know, torrential sweats. The most powerful symptom was like somebody gripped my jaw and I couldn't move it. Mm -hmm. So I knew that I was having a heart attack because my sister had had two of them. My mother had died of congestive heart failure. So I knew that I was a candidate, but it never occurred to me that this could happen. I just had a normal workout, nothing, you know, nothing unusual. So I drove home. I didn't go straight to the hospital. Oh my God. I think that gets better. I picked up the phone, called my office. I was working um, at an outpatient drug and alcohol rehab at the time um, with, with people who had addictions. My own addiction was workaholism. I called and said, I'm not feeling very well today. Can you cancel my, my clients? And I hung up. I, the phone was right there in my hand. I didn't call 911. I drove to the hospital. Oh my God. In the midst of a heart attack. Now, the, the hospital, Doylestown Hospital, is only 10 minutes away from where I live, but I could have had an accident. I could have killed somebody. Yes. And, um, I, you know, and I, and I attributed to oxygen deprivation <laughs> because that was a really dumb thing to do. So don't ever, ever, ever drive to the hospital in the midst of a heart attack. Call 911. So I stumble into the, the ER and I said, I think I'm having a heart attack. They whisk me up to the cardiac cath lab. They insert a stent. And shortly after that, the cardiologist comes in and shows me a picture of what the fully occluded, um, it's an LAD, the, you know, the Widowmaker artery. Mm. It was totally blocked, what it looked like before the stent was inserted. And it looked like a bent tree branch. Mm -hmm. And he showed me the picture of what it looked like with a stent in it, and it was popped up. And he said, don't let this happen again. And I said, well, how did it happen in the first place? He said, tell me about your life you know, your lifestyle. And I said, 12 to 14 hour days, sleeping maybe five or six hours a night, um, swigging five hour energy drinks occasionally. In fact, I had one the day before the heart attack, um, taking on everybody else's issues, plus the family predisposition. My blood pressure was through the roof. My cholesterol was high. He said, you got to take care of that. So um, that day, Phil and Janet, you know, Phil, 
who was Adam's, my son's unofficial big brother, mm-hmm. then father figure, came in. He, Phil was from New York. He leaned over my bed and says, you go back to work next week? I come over and break both your legs. <laughs> and I, and I took him seriously. And Janet says, I demand to speak with your social worker. That person needs to know what your lifestyle is like and needs to tell you that you can't go back to work for at least two weeks. I said, all right, all right, all right. So I came home, lying on the couch, watching the ceiling fan spin. Remember, I'm a work, you know, recovering workaholic. Mm-hmm. And I was talking to a friend who had had a heart attack about eight months earlier. And I said, well, what kept you how did you end up staying home? He said, Susan, who's his wife, made me take time off. And he said, I was talking to somebody or read something about um, this Fortune 500 um, CEO who had had a heart attack and some his coach had got, advised him not to go back to work too soon and the guy didn't pay attention. And the coach said, don't let your heart attack go to waste. So I decided not to let my heart attack go to waste. Mm -hmm. And I listened to the doctors. I went to cardiac rehab and part of it was walking. So I spent a lot of time walking through Doylestown, Pennsylvania, again, town near where I live. And I said, hmm, why don't I combine the hugs, you know, hugging with the walking? Because hugs are heart friendly and, you know, emotionally heart friendly as well as cardiac friendly. And friends had started to call us hug mobsters, you know, flash mob, hug mob, and I added the tagline armed with love to make it warmer and fuzzier and not seem like, it, like, you know, we're, we're mm-hmm. part of the mob, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so I started doing free hug strolls and I branched out from Doylestown to Philadelphia, to New York, to DC. When I was visiting friends in Toronto, the, that area, I did free hugs there. And the coolest place that I did it was in 2018 in Ireland. Um, I brought my free hug sign with me there and got to hug some really amazing people in Ireland. So then the pandemic happened and I stopped doing it at least temporarily. And I thought, what if we can never hug again? How is that possible? You know, Mm -hmm. that here we are as human beings hardwired for touch and I can't ever hug anybody again. So right after that, I had this really cool dream where I dreamed that we could hug people back to back or back to front like spooning. So it was a reassurance that eventually we'd be able to hug again. Um, I still, you know, I haven't done the full blown free hugs thing. Um, I've done virtual free hug events where I've stood on street corners and when people approach me, I offer them a virtual hug where I hug myself and ask them to hug themselves. So this Valentine's Day weekend, I might do that again. Um, I have started hugging people on, you know, on a casual basis, not a formal basis. You know, I'm, I've had COVID was pretty simple for me. I'm vaccinated, I'm boosted. So I feel safer hugging people. Um, so that, you know, that feels good, but that's, that's the hug mobster story. So were you doing this prior to when it was being done? Cause I've seen it, um, done. W- were you like one of the first people to be doing this? I don't know if I was one of the first, but I had first heard about it. Um, there was a gentleman in, I think New Zealand, either Australia or New Zealand. His name is Juan Mann. He uses the name Juan Mann. I don't think that's his real name, but mm-hmm. it's, it's to like a, um, a takeoff on the word one man. Um, so he was a, a gentleman, again, either um, um, Australia or New Zealand, who had just moved um, and was lonely. And he said, I want to go out in town and, you know, in the town square and see if I can experience hugs with people. So he stood there with his free hug sign and 
five minutes went by 10, 20, nobody stopped to hug him. And then this older woman, tiny little older woman approached him and helped reached up her arms to him. She Aww. reached his, he reached his arms down to her and they embraced. And then other people started approaching him. So I think he was the, the pioneer, but there are other people in different parts of the world that do free hugs as well. Um, there's, have you ever heard of free mom hugs? No. no. Okay. Sarah Cunningham um, is a mom in um, Oklahoma City, and she considered herself a devout Christian, went to church, Bible believing, and her son came out to her as a gay man. Mm -hmm. And she went into a tailspin. She thought, I have to decide between God and my son. How is that possible? So she had a, a dark night of the soul, and she wrote a book called how we sleep at night something like that i haven't read it but i think that's the name of the book and her son invited her to a pride fest in oklahoma city and she went there with a button that she made that said free mom hugs mm -hmm. um, with the idea that a lot when people come out to their parents often they don't get hugs <laughs> so she wanted to be that that loving maternal presence she said by the end of the event she was covered in in tears and glitter and she said okay i'm leaving my non-affirming church i'm going to become a minister so i can marry same-sex couples and i'm going to be um a stand-in mom at same-sex weddings so her what she says is if your mom won't be there i will and i'll bring the bubbles and Jamie Lee Curtis heard her story and they're making a film about about Sarah. Uh, they look a bit alike, actually, which is which is really cool. So free mom hugs is all over the world and they're also free dad hugs. So I've done that. I've gone to pride fests and parades and and with my free mom hugs shirt on as well. Oh, my gosh. Everything that you're just saying is just uh, it's this this human it's again i said it before but it's this human connection it's this heart to heart i mean what better feeling is there than a hug when it's wanted yep when it's a wanted hug where it's like there's so much exchange without any words having to be spoken and right. like you said with the um the vietnam war vet it's that it's that so often there are many people that don't get touch anymore for whatever reason and yep non-touch deprivation is it affects you to your core oh absolutely um another place that i went was a, um, a veterans homeless shelter in kensington which is a kind of down and out drug infested neighborhood in philadelphia and there was a, a gentleman there who was a vet. i don't know which war he fought in but when i hugged him he said i haven't been touched in 20 years. Oh my God. Can you imagine that? No. So I hugged him longer than normal and I let him be the first one to let go. So that was pretty cool. Um, now, a lot of what we're talking about here is part of my TEDx talk called Overcoming the Taboo of Touch. And it talks about the importance of healthy nurturing touch by consent. Because that's huge, you know, to, to for people, they have to say yes or I don't hug them, including my grandson. Yes. You know, what we what we do with him is, you know, when I leave the next the next grandparent shift takes over or aunt takes over. So family watches the grandkids right now. And when he when I leave, I say, do you would you like a hug or we do high fives or we blow kisses? So when he knows he has a choice, he'll usually opt for a hug. 
but sometimes he'll do all three of them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So thank you for sharing all that. Sure. So um, I want to kind of at least get to the second question before we get to the third. Uh, so how do you, we've talked about your writing and these other aspects of yourself, but how do you um, incorporate more creativity into your own life? Well, mostly the way I dress. <laughs> I'm very colorful. Um, I My style is kind of hippie, goddessy, flowy, colorful. Um, my hair is purple. Um, I dyed it again today. <laughs> How'd that like go? Oh, it's great. I do, I do it myself. So it's, mm -hmm. it's fun. I use a vegan hair dye and, and it's, uh, you know, it's very purple right now. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm sitting in a lounge chair or like, yeah, lounger in the living room co covered by a, um, a blanket that my best friend made for me that's tie-dye. Um, so that's how I, you know, I express myself creatively with how I dress. My home is eclectically decorated. So it's, I've got a big Buddha on, you know, Buddha image on one wall. I've got a Native American woman with a horse in front of me. I've got a mind, circular mind calendar on another wall. I've got an angel on another wall and I've got a dream catcher on another. So I'm surrounded by color, by vibrance. Um, by, you know, just juicy energy. Mm, I love it. I can completely relate to that. And this, yeah. we, are, we have well, like, I said, like, yeah, when I saw your, um, <laughs> the, the room that you were sitting in, I said, Oh, I've got one of those. And Oh, I like that one. You know, that I'm sure our decorating styles are similar. <laughs> so much around the house. And actually in one of our bathrooms, it's, uh, my husband was like collecting Buddhas so oh, we have like a Buddha shelf and then we got this one Buddha and I said, is something going to happen if I bedazzle the Buddha? Like, oh. it, <laughs> am I breaking like some kind of something? And right. my husband's like, whatever, go for it. So I got a bunch of like fun mm -hmm. beads and then bedazzle oh, the Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. My bathroom, I've got um, a Ganesh, you know, the, the yeah. uh, Hindu god of, you know, the removing obstacles. I figured that was a good, a good thing to have in the bathroom. Um, <laughs> uh, what else? I have a peace sign. I have the word Shalom, you know, Hebrew for peace. I have an Om symbol on the wall. Um, I've got a poster of, um, I forget who, oh my goodness, I can't remember his name. The spiritual teacher that said, don't worry, be happy. Um, well, Oh my goodness, I'm having a middle-aged moment. So yeah, that's another way I express myself creatively. When I'm when I'm working with clients, I warn them. I say, I'm you know, I tell them I'm a, I'm a writer, so I'm going to speak to you in metaphors sometimes. Mm -hmm. So I find creative ways of expressing. Mm. I just have to finish the thought in the bathroom. It's an all-inclusive space. <laughs> 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 and really in every in every room it sounds like it's oh, all yeah. inclusive oh, we yeah. have native american on one side we have hindu on the other side we have this one yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah yeah but um that's a very big thing is uh uh is metaphors and using your words and how you sculpt and shape them mm -hmm. um do you have any kind of a morning routine yes um, before I get out of bed, um, I set my intention for the day. Um, I say uh, a morning prayer. Now, I was, as I mentioned, I was raised Jewish. There's a prayer that people say in the morning called Modet Ani, um, which is basically thanking God, the universe spirit for giving you another day of life. Um, so I do that. I have a shower routine, which is really fun. 
Um, and I've been doing it probably for the last year or so. So when I, as soon as I get in the shower, I say I'm letting go of anger, fear, worry, disgust, disdain, guilt, shame, blame, um, everything that caused pain. You know, I'm on, I'm on like a, it's like a rap shower rap song. Um, I let go of, of judgment. Um, I let go of the carrying the weight of the world, you know, all the things that I want to release and it goes whoosh down the drain. And then when I'm soaping up, um, I'm calling in love, peace, abundance, prosperity, serenity, kindness, caring, compassion. So I, I call, you know, call in whatever I want in my life. And by the time I'm out of the shower, I'm clean physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, every which way. And if I feel like I need a tune up during the day, I'll do it again. If I feel like I'm blue, like I'm dragging, I'll do the, the routine again. I don't get in the shower to do it during the day, but. That's um, what I was gonna ask, if it had to be, or if it could be, you take yourself. No, sometimes mm -hmm. I do it in the car. <laughs> That's beautiful though. That is such, thank you for that. Cause it's very, I've heard something like that said before, but um, it's very doable. Like you're in the shower and you could just be like, yes, I'm letting go of, and just whatever that is. And then what I'm calling in and wow, literally, you're literally clean of everything. Mm -hmm. Yep. Freedom. Yep. There's a tremendous sense of freedom in that. Yeah. And the fact that you can take it with you wherever you are. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely portable. And I also say prayer is portable. Um, I don't, I look at prayer as <clears throat> I call them God versations where I'll, mm -hmm. I'll have a, a very familiar conversation with the God of my understanding. And sometimes I get feisty <laughs> with the God of my understanding. Like, how could you let this happen? And you know, um, and I listen to messages that from, if you want to call it the universe spirit, um, I get messages in my dreams and, you know, in meditations mm -hmm. and I pay attention to them. I get messages from loved ones who passed. Um, sometimes my, even now, 24 years later, sometimes my husband still comes to me in dreams and I have to remind him that he's dead, <laughs> you know, that, um, and then both of my parents have died. A dear friend died four years ago and I get messages from them. So that to me is creativity is, is being open to inspiration. Yeah. Well, does your, I guess I feel like I have to touch on that just for a second. When you say that about your husband, do you feel like he doesn't know that he isn't alive or is it just that time isn't, you know, of relevance and it just all is? Well, he's in the dreams. He interacts with me as if he's still alive, <clears throat> as if he thinks he's still alive. So I, that's how I have to remind him is, you know, you died. X number of years ago. Mm -hmm. And I think part of it is just carrying baggage. Like, you know, like every relationship, it was paradoxical. So I still carry some of the, the regrets and the what ifs and the if onlys. And I have to say, okay, you need to move on. I need to move on. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's interesting when um, my father's been gone for, uh, it's going to be 20 years this year. And um, I told him, uh, as we were standing next to his coffin, I said, please do not, um, visit me when I'm awake. You're going to scare the hell out of me. Please come to me in my dreams. And for the longest time he didn't. And, but when he does every once in a while, it took a long time for him to show up. He wasn't coming towards me. Mm. He was staying at a distance. And then I was still freaking out. 
Um, and I remember telling my husband, I'm like, oh my God, dad was in the dream. Da, da, da. And, and he was just eating at a table and he wasn't even looking at me and he didn't even come over to me. And my husband, he let me do my thing. And then he stops and he goes, Hollis, do you see how you're freaking out right now? <laughs> <laughs> he knows that he couldn't come up to you because you would freak out more. Right. Right. And I was like, huh, I guess you're right. <laughs> yeah. But recently he came to me. Um, I was kind of asking if he was around. And I was like, just kind of show me a sign if you're around. And I went to sleep and he was in my dream. Aww. Yeah, they do. They do show up. My mother comes to me in the form of a butterfly. Um, so she, we had talked about that when she was on hospice. I said, what do you think happens when we die? And she said, I don't know. I said, well, when you do know, come back and tell me. And she said, I'll come back as a butterfly. So oh. they show up a lot. She, butterflies show up a lot. Oh God, that's amazing. So freaking powerful. Everybody. Oh my gosh. Okay. So as we're getting to the top of the hour, so the third and final question as we wrap everything up, and it's a little repetitive, but it's kind of like putting a little bow on the box, which is, why do you think creativity is important? It keeps us alive. It keeps life interesting. It helps us to connect with other people. Um, it, for some people, myself included, it's passion and purpose mm -hmm. is, is creativity. Um, it helps us put more beauty out into the world no matter what it is, whether it's creating, you know, baking, gardening, um, raising children, taking care of animals, um, you know, doing um, graphic arts, pottery, jewelry making, sculpting, writing, um, performance art, you know, dancing, singing, mu music. I'm surrounded by so many creative people in my life. And I love it that, you know, that the people that I'm closest to have a creative gift to give. And I think that's what it is. It's a gift that we give to the world that comes back and nourishes us as well. I love that. Thank do you. Do you ever see yourself retiring? That's a good question. I would love to be able to, but I never will. I'll never be able to because I, you know, I need to make money. But even if I retired from my full-time work, you know, as a therapist, um, I would still write. I would still speak. Um, I would do a lot, you know, a lot of what I'm doing. Yeah. Yeah. So no, as long as I can think and as long as I can type or speak, I can work. And, and it's a labor of love. Yes, because that's what I mean is, is all of these aspects, so much of what you are putting out into the world is truly about connection and it's coming, it's like light beaming from your heart. Um, and it's learning to create boundaries, which is what needed to happen with the heart attack. <laughs> and, sure. and prior to that is creating boundaries and uh, uh, creating safe space for you to realize your importance and your worthiness in the whole picture of everything and you don't have to take on the world. Um, but it's, it just doesn't seem like you could ever be like, Oh, I'm not gonna try and go out and, um, you know, marry these people because there's such love or go out and hug people, um, to make somebody's day better. It just doesn't seem like your person that'd be like, no, nah, I'm not going to do that anymore. No. Uh, um, yeah, I would, I would love to continue to do those things. Those are, um, 
you know, a gift to me because when you're the, you know, when you're the giver, you get something back. Um, one of the other things that I do is I'm, I'm a co-founder of a group, an online Facebook group called Bucks County Kind. And we encourage people to do acts of kindness. So you don't have to be from Bucks County, Pennsylvania to be in this group, but Facebook Bucks County Kind. Yeah. Yeah. In this space. And um, it's truly understanding everybody that it's people, you treat people the way you want to be treated. Mm-hmm. It's a basic concept, but sometimes that gets lost in in the mix of things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in treating people with respect, even the littlest things, um, I can say like when checking out at the cash register and just saying to someone, oh my gosh, I love your nails. Yep. Um, yep. The person behind the register, or I love your earrings, or how are you today? And people yeah. really stop and say, thank you for asking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and absolutely. Because you don't know anybody's story. You, you don't know what happened before somebody got to work. You don't know if they got into a huge fight. You don't know if somebody passed away. You don't know if they're going through a divorce. You don't know if you don't know anything. So a person might either be really cranky and that's the way they're showing it, or they may be putting on a complete mask, mm-hmm. but feeling horrible on the inside. Right. And... At the beginning of the pandemic, um, I, you know, wearing a mask, um, I still smiled, you know, like an eye, eye hug, like kind of smiling through your eyes. And I would ask people, you know, in, in essential jobs, I said, how are people treating you? You know, are you, are they being kind to you? And they'd say sometimes, no, they're not. And I said, that's a shame uh, because you're doing, you are doing essential work. And even if you weren't, you know, you still deserve kindness. So yeah. treating each other, because when I do hugs, I don't know anybody's, what anybody's beliefs are. I don't know who they voted for. I don't know what their religion is. I don't know what their politics are at all. I don't know how they live. Um, so it's just human to human. Yeah, that's what it is. Human to human, everybody. So Edie, how can people connect with you? Uh, I have a website. It's www.opti-mystical.com. Um, I'm on Facebook, Edie Weinstein. And um, the optimistical came to me in a dream. Uh, the voice said to me, you're not just an optimist. You're an optimistic who sees the world through the eyes of possibility. Wow. <laughs> pretty cool. Huh? That is really cool. <laughs> this is everybody who, if somebody's listening and they're like, eh, I don't believe in that. One of the, um, you just made me think of that. One of the quotes I have, which is creativity is a meditation with your eyes open. Mm-hmm. When, after my father had passed, uh, my mom went to a medium and the medium said, your husband wants your, your daughter to hear this message mm-hmm. because he knew of my business. Yeah. not when he was alive, when mm-hmm. he's been where he is, where he is. So um, I was, she didn't know anything about what I did. And I heard that and I'm just like, holy crap. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. Yep. Yeah, definitely. I mean, and the cool thing is somebody years ago, um, after seeing what I posted, created a meme with that quote on it. And on my birthday, maybe six or seven years ago, somebody said Julian Lennon, son of John Lennon, um, yeah. had posted it on his Facebook page. I posted, put the meme, 
And I said, nah. Now they said, go look, go look, it's there. You know? Oh my so God. Julian Lennon, optimistic, optimistic. And, uh, and I'll, you'll see it. History. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh, you're famous, famous, famous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You're doing such incredible things in the world. Thank so before you. we say our goodbyes, is there anything like that you feel like you forgot to say? Anything top of mind, or are you good? Well, check out, you know, check out my my TEDx talk again, um, called Overcoming the Taboo of Touch. It's on YouTube. And feel free to share it with the world. And I, and I consider it a hug that can be shared around the world. Yes. All of that will be listed in the show notes and everything. Thank you. So perfect, perfect, perfect. So Edie, thank you so much for hanging out for this hour and chatting and inspiring us. I so appreciate you. My pleasure. And I, well, one thing in closing, I invite people to do a virtual hug if they want to wrap their, their arms around themselves and think about somebody that you really, really, really want to hug and send that hug to them as you're hugging yourself. There we go. And everybody, uh, whether you believe energy or not, whatever it is, it's, it's, there's the energetics go out there. So it is being sent and it's being felt. Thank you. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So everybody, thank you so much for joining us. We know that you could be doing anything with your hour and we so appreciate that you chose to spend it with us. The space is all about inspiring each other, connecting and sharing stories. So please like follow, share all of that good stuff, because I believe we've always needed this, but I think we need it now more than ever, more than ever. So wherever you are in the world, I wish you a good morning, a good afternoon, a good evening, and look forward to connecting with you soon. So goodbye, everybody. Feeling inspired? Let's just get rid of this, throw away this whole perfectionism thing, this whole concept that we have to know how to do everything. You know what? You don't. <laughs> Let's just do things and try things and realize what we like and what we don't like. It's all part of the process. The self-awareness feels so good. You feel more connection to yourself, connection to others, and huh, be a happier, more joyful person. Just imagine that. So you are where you are in the process. So you can dip your toe in the water to try new things at a slower pace, or you can dive right in. Here at I Am Creative and Express Yourself Publishing, we meet you where you are. So there are so many ways to check us out explore our experiential kits they have everything in them that you need to try new things you don't have to buy anything else but this kit and just explore there's creative shui which is seven elements to join happiness through the publishing house express yourself publishing multi-author books coffee books solo book opportunities it is all about expression all about it and it's again just trying these things and realizing what you're good at. Don't all of a sudden think that you only fit into one box because we don't. We are not made for boxes. <laughs> there is also my TV show, I Am Creative. Check it out. The links are all in the body of this podcast. You can just click the link. And you know what? Don't say, oh, maybe I'll check it out tomorrow. Life's too short. Just click it. See what it's about. There is honestly no judgment. It's all about exploring the possibilities, expressing yourself, and expanding your thinking. I will give you the website, which is iamcreativephilly.com. 
So I am creative Philly, P-H-I-L-L-Y.com. And just remember that you are an expressive being, so own it. I am looking forward to hearing your story because we all have one.